Hi, I'm Lauren Gilger, co-host of the show, one of KJZZ's original productions. It's a program with news and features from across Phoenix and the state. You can find much more at theshow.kjzz.org. Here's today's episode. Good morning. It's the show here on KJZZ 91.5 in Phoenix. I'm Mark Brody. And I'm Lauren Gilger. Coming up, how do you accurately count the number of people experiencing homelessness in the Valley? And we'll meet the artist who designed the Phoenix Sun City Edition jerseys for this season known as El Valle. But first, the Arizona Republican Party is in turmoil this week after audio of a conversation between failed GOP gubernatorial candidate and current Senate candidate Carrie Lake and state GOP chair Jeff DeWitt was released. It's being called a bribe. In what he says was edited audio, DeWitt conveys a job offer from, quote, very important people in exchange for Lake staying out of the 2024 U.S. Senate race. The recording was released on Tuesday to the Daily Mail, and yesterday, DeWitt resigned, apparently under threat from Lake's team that they would release more, even more damaging recordings if he didn't. That is being called blackmail. Now the future of the state party is left in chaos as the 2024 elections draw nearer. KJZZ's Wayne Shutsky from our politics desk is following all the drama and joins us now to talk more about it. Hey there, Wayne. Hi. Okay, so we've got bribes and we've got blackmail being alleged here. Let's just start with how big of a deal this all is. Like, what kind of reaction has this had or or, 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 created across the political world? Well, it's pretty significant. As you said, Jeff DeWitt, the chairman of the state party, resigned because of this so that he's the you know the figurehead at the top of the state party. Um, I think it's a bigger deal for kind of the hardcore uh, political types, the, the the PCs, as we call them, the, <laughs> the rank and file of the party. Uh, many of the Lake supporters have been saying for, for years that, you know, the establishment's trying to get rid of her. And now they're pointing to this as evidence that that's true. OK, so tell us more about what is in this tape. What else did DeWitt say? Uh, essentially, it's a, it's a conversation in Lake's living room where he is broaching the topic of her not running for Senate. This was recorded about 10 months ago, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, and he basically says, you know, I'd like, you know, take a break, run again in two years, which he later said in a letter is is was essentially a reference to wanting her to run for governor again. Mm. Um, and yeah, as you mentioned, she he said, you know, there are powerful people from, quote unquote, back east who uh will make it worth her while, essentially, to not run, uh, maybe set her up with some sort of position, um, well-paid position, Mm -hmm. um, in lieu of running for Senate. Okay. So many are calling this a bribery attempt. What has DeWitt, though, had to say about it? Um, I mean, he didn't deny that the conversation occurred. Obviously, he did say it was selectively edited, insinuating that it was was a cut to make him look worse than it should have. But he did say he regretted some of the statements and the way he phrased it in there, um, but essentially said that it was a conversation because they didn't think Lake was the best candidate and it was a way to try and uh, make room for someone else. Okay. What is Lake's camp saying about all of this? I mean, she held like a sort of a press conference yesterday. Yeah, she went on Rumble, which is kind of uh, the the right wing YouTube and said, you know, so many reporters are reaching out to me. I'm going to cut out the middleman. I'm just going to talk on here. You know, so with her uh, patented uh, soft glow, she she addressed some of the questions from the audience, which included, you know, um, that she agrees with them, that this was an attempt by the establishment to undermine Donald Trump, to under- undermine Kerry Lake, that that DeWitt was the, the mouthpiece for these uh, establishment Republican interests trying to get rid of her, which is a little funny considering he actually worked on Donald Trump's yeah. uh, campaigns multiple times and was also the CFO of NASA under Trump. So he's a 
pretty connected, pretty mm-hmm. Trump guy. Um, so to suggest that he's trying to undermine Trump in some way is maybe not uh, totally truthful. Let's talk lastly here, Wayne, about what all of this means for the future of the state Republican Party, because now there is no chair. The party's sort of in disarray heading into an election year. They're holding a meeting this weekend. Will they go ahead and elect a new chair? Uh, that's a good question. Uh, I've been trying to figure out the answer. Uh, the latest I've heard is they can elect one on Saturday. The bylaws allow them to replace a vacancy in the state chair if there is a uh, mandatory meeting, which this is within the next 90 days. Now, this one is coming up this Saturday, so it's a pretty quick beat. And I've heard from some Republicans who will be there that it will be difficult for them to even get ballots printed in time, anything, you know, because these are conducted essentially like elections. And but there is already um, flyers floating around for candidates. Uh, (laughs) One name floated is Corporation Commission Chairman Jim O'Connor, who has already tried to become the chair a few years ago and uh, is known for for uh, uh, peddling uh, unproven conspiracy about voting machines and suggesting that the Maricopa County Board of Supervisors is rigging elections and that kind of thing. What does this mean politically? Like the party, how much does it matter heading into an election that the state party is sort of, you know, in chaos at the very moment? Like how much do they play a role in top ticket, down ticket races? I think it's a huge deal. The party... Um, in some of those bigger races, the presidential races, the national races, they're kind of the the point that interacts with a lot of those national groups, national Republican groups, the Senate committee that's trying to get Lake elected the uh, in a governor's race year, the you know, the NRC. So to not have anyone at the helm steering that ship is is significant. The other part is fundraising. The, the state party is a big fundraising vehicle and they've struggled going back to the previous chair, um, Kelly Ward, to – write the fundraising ship because a lot of those establishment Republicans who had that money weren't comfortable giving her that money. Hmm. DeWitt said he was the guy to fix that. It took him a while. Recent finance reports showed that that was starting to come around. Um, Certain members of that establishment donor class in the most recent finance report had given uh, significant chunks of money. But the Republican Party in Arizona is still trailing well behind the Democratic Party in terms of fundraising going into this election season. And that matters for local races or all the races? That matters, I mean, for all the races, theoretically. I mean, if we look back at the um, last election, Mm -hmm. you know, the Republicans lost the Senate, the U.S. Senate seat again after, you know, after losing to Kirsten Sinema, they lost, you know, and then Mark Kelly. Um, And then they lost the governor's race as well, which, you know, many saw as a pretty big upset. They did a little bit better down ticket um, in some of those legislative races. Um, But I think a lot more of that has to do with, you know, just the makeup of those districts. A lot of their candidates were running in safe districts, that kind of thing. Um, But we've got some competitive races this year that could figure into control who controls the legislature next year. And um, if they, if they don't get their, their act together, they could end up sacrificing some of those races. All right. We'll leave it there for now. Wayne Chetsky, KJZZ's Politics Desk, joining us. Wayne, thanks as always. Yeah, thank you. The Arizona Commerce Authority has come under scrutiny recently for some of the ways in which it tries to entice businesses and their CEOs to come to the state. An Auditor General's report from this past fall said, among other findings, that the agency couldn't show whether incentive money it had given out actually led to companies to invest in Arizona. And earlier this month, Attorney General Chris May said events known as CEO forums violate the state constitution. 
Meanwhile, there's debate at the state capitol over the agency's future. There's a bill to get rid of the Commerce Authority altogether, while other lawmakers are suggesting continuing it, but with changes and for a shorter period of time than what's typical. With me now to talk about what all this means for economic development in Arizona is economist Jim Rounds with Rounds Consulting Group. Good morning, Jim. Good morning. How significant is the Commerce Authority and the role it plays in terms of overall economic development here? So I was thinking about the best way to answer that question. And think about it as you're trying to build something and you have multiple tools that you need. The Commerce Authority is like a screwdriver. It's something that you need to build it, but there's also a lot of other tools as well. We have Greater Phoenix Economic Council. We have the individual cities and counties participating and they provide more incentives than anybody else. Um, there's, a, there's a whole group of people, workforce development folks, a whole group of people. So a whole set of tools that bring these businesses here and creates this economic growth that we had to start encouraging after the Great Recession. And we can talk about that too, but they're an important tool. In some cases, you might have a lot of tools, but if you don't have the one that you need uh, for that particular project, you're not. And ACA is one of those important tools. Well, so uh, so let's look at sort of the current climate in which the ACA is operating in terms of coming under under criticism for the way it sort of you know quote unquote wines and dines CEOs and and other business leaders and executives. If the ACA is no longer able to do that, as Attorney General Mays says it isn't, what else can and should the authority be doing in terms of trying to do that kind of economic development work? Well, the, the attorneys are screwing this whole thing up, and I, I, I could use much harsher words on this. The, the attorneys are going back to some very bad economic development deals that went through the court system, and then ultimately some you know rose high enough where we had the supreme court ruling on what could be considered an incentive and what isn't this is a this is the same court that said well if you bring money into the state and it generates tax revenue that doesn't count what does the tax revenue buy it buys the roads that we drive on that's a direct tangible asset to all the taxpayers it provides services to individuals it provides public safety there is no way to indicate that the tax revenue doesn't have a direct impact on the individual, but they're stuck on this because they haven't had a quality economic development case that was litigated where they could have more intelligent conversations. So the attorney general is wrong on that it's unconstitutional because we're just going to have to go through and have a court case and show this is how the economy works. And one way to think about it is the same attorneys, they get a paycheck. If they buy anything with that paycheck, they just justified all of these indirect and induced benefits. So, you know, you have your primary benefits from the business, but that that money gets spent in the economy. They say, well, that's not really proven. That doesn't exist. Unless you're an individual that has raised their own horse that you ride to the office, you're growing your own food in your backyard and you built your own home, then you spent money on other people's services. That's the economic activity that happens. So, in this case, I know that there's a lot of legal discussion, but the lawyers do not understand economics. And we've had so many discussions about this. It's gotten very frustrating. It, well, I think, though, to, to the point that folks like Jake Hoffman are making, maybe to, to an extent that Chris Mays are making that and the Auditor General pointed this out, that, you know, the state spends the Commerce Authority spends X you know, millions of dollars to try to incentivize businesses to come here either through CEO forms or through direct incentives. And they're like it. 
what they're saying is the Commerce Authority has not done a really good job of saying, okay, here's what we spent. Here is exactly what we've gotten for that. These companies have come here. This number of jobs have have come here. This is the, to your point, the, this is the, you know, the amount of tax revenue. These are the roads that we've been able to buy because of that. Is this just an accounting thing or is there something more, do you think? Well, the way I understand it is that the, the complaints really aren't, are they operating efficiently? It's, are they providing the right are they providing adequate records? And that can always be improved. In fact, I think it should be improved because if there's any future lawsuits, because people don't understand how economics works and they're going to question some of the, these incentives, even if they're providing a positive return on investment for the taxpayer, ultimately, um, you have to have all the I's dotted and the T's crossed. So I think that ACA uh, probably can improve how it does its record keeping. It can probably demonstrate how it follows up with businesses because you, if you give an incentive for a company and they end up dropping below the the agreed upon number of workers, then you can get those incentives back. So they have to have really solid record keeping. And so I think that's totally true. There's ways where ACA can improve. But again, I wouldn't just go home and say, I'm a little bit unhappy with the grip on that screwdriver. I'm just going to throw it away and then make do with something else. And I'm using a kitchen knife to try to screw in uh, something and it's not going to work. We can't get to gimmicks. We actually have to have some legitimate tools. So quickly before we let you go, Jim, gut feeling, I mean, you've spent a lot of time at at the legislature. Do you think the Commerce Authority undergoes significant changes this year? I wouldn't call it significant. I think it's going to undergo, I think it'll be part of the political discussion. And I actually appreciate the fact that people are questioning it because it makes an agency go forward and say, you know, explain exactly why it's relevant. And I think this issue is going to come up more and more, which is a good thing. You want to justify to taxpayers how monies are being spent and to show that the taxpayers are getting more money back than they're actually uh, getting taxed in some of these projects. But I feel like there will be an effort so that this doesn't keep coming up. There are things that they can do. They can probably uh, create additional programs for the rural communities at a heightened level compared to right now. Uh, They can have more partnerships. Um, There's a lot of things that they can do better, but everybody can do better. I, I like when clients say, hey, I wish that you did. I wish you did something a little bit different on this report because mm. then I can do better the next time. So th- this should be part of the natural process. I'm all for this discussion happening. I just don't want to see them eliminated. You don't throw the baby out with the bathwater, so to speak. All right. We'll have to leave it there. That is Jim Rounds with Rounds Consulting Group. Jim, good as always to talk to you. Thank you. Thanks, sir. Good morning. It's the show on KJZZ 91.5. I'm Lauren Gilger. And I'm Mark Brody. Coming up, embracing low rider culture on the hardwood. The fact that the there's a NBA jersey celebrating low rider culture, I think that by itself destigmatizes it because it's really this huge platform that's embracing something, a beautiful culture, right? And really telling the story the way it should be told. We'll hear from the artist who designed the Phoenix Sun's El Valle uniforms. But first, a federal ban has prohibited uranium mining around the Grand Canyon for years. But now a new mine has begun operations just seven miles south of Grand Canyon National Park. The Pinion Plain mine comes in response to demand. The U.S. is trying to boost domestic production of of uranium, which is needed for nuclear energy and to lead us away from dependence on fossil fuels. 
But the Havasupai tribe has long opposed the mine. They say it could contaminate their only source of water and damage cultural sites. It also lies within a new national monument designated in the area by President Joe Biden last year. Here to tell us more about what this means is Manvi Singh, West Coast reporter for The Guardian. Good morning, Manvi. Good morning. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for coming on. So, okay, we've got uranium mining in the area that hasn't been allowed for years and that it's the fact that this is within the boundaries of this new national monument the president designated just last year. How did this mine come to be? How is it going? Um, Yeah, so this is this mine has had a lot of opposition. Um, And when Joe Biden designated the area around the Grand Canyon last year, it did, you know, stop new mines from coming up. But because of this gold rush era mining law that still governs the way we do mining today, the monument declaration did not negate this company's claim to the mine because mines that were under development prior to the declaration were exempted from the ban. Okay. So tell us more about the concerns from the Havasupai tribe in particular. What have they been saying? How, why have they been fighting this for decades? Um, so these are their ancestral lands that were taken from them, and the mine is right up against two of their most sacred sites. And on top of that, they and environmentalists in the region are really concerned that if anything goes wrong at the mine, um, it's going to contaminate their aquifer, which is their sole source of water in a very arid region where water is scarce. Um, and then separately, the Ute Mountain Ute tribe is concerned uh, about air pollution from a nearby uh, mill facility where this uranium is going to be taken and processed. Okay. Well, are those claims verified? Like what does the Arizona Department of Environmental Quality say? Yeah, so there's some disagreement here. Um, Energy Fuels Inc., the company that's, you know, doing this mine, um, they say that there is no scientific evidence that the aquifer is at risk. um, And the Arizona Department of Environmental Quality says that they have reviewed years of data, including from the geological survey, and they have determined that the layers of rock between the mine and the aquifer are impermeable. Mm. Um, So they're saying there's no risk of contamination. Mm. You quoted one tribal member in your story, though, about this, who said that they all kind of knew this might eventually happen. Why did she say that? You know, she, uh, Carletta Tolusi, who I interviewed, um, she was a formal, former council member, and she's been fighting against this mine for years. She said, you know, they've been fighting for generations. So the generation before her was also fighting uranium in the region. And they kind of just saw this as an inevitability. Um, They fought really hard against it, but they're up against, you know, this 1872 mining law. And just really the way um, the structure around this is set up is really, it makes it really difficult for tribes to, to fight, you know, these mine constructions or even have really input on how it's done. Hmm. And there are sort of, there's a lot of this around that area, right? Like there are abandoned mines, tainted aquifers all over that region. Yeah. So that's where it really, you know, that's where the Havasupai are really sort of skeptical. So they're like, okay, you're saying this is safe. You're saying that the science backs you up here, but we've been burned before. And really like uranium mining in the 20th century has this really dark, shameful legacy of destroying indigenous communities in the Southwest. Mm. Um, you know, uranium mining um, 
littered the Navajo Nation with um, just abandoned mines, and it really exploited and then abandoned this generation of DNA workers and their families who now are still dealing with like this legacy of lung cancer and other illness. Um, so there's like a lot of there's a lack of trust there. Mm. Tell us about the the global demands here, like the broader picture in terms of uranium. Uranium prices were down for years. So there was not a lot of demand. Now there is. This has to do with COP28? Um, yeah. So, I mean, in general, it has to do with this, um, you know, desire to transition away from fossil fuels and to address the climate crisis. Um, at COP28, um, there was an agreement the U.S. was a part of to triple nuclear energy production as a means to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. So that's boosted demand. And there's this other factor, which is, um, you know, since Russia uh, invaded Ukraine, um, there's this desire to kind of move away from Russia as a source of uranium. And that's really a country that's dominated the industry. Mm. And so now the U.S. is really wanting to make more of it. Are we expecting, you think, to see more of this on the horizon, more battles like this over these kinds of mines? Because, you know, this desire for a clean energy future isn't going away. Yeah, that's that's kind of a big one. It's not just uranium, but also cobalt, copper. You know, we're really going to need these minerals in order to make that green energy transition. And really what I heard from um, the Havasupai and just environmentalists in the region is like, yes, we do want to address the climate crisis. We agree that there needs to be a transition. But in making that transition, we really don't want to like repeat the mistakes of the past. Mm -hmm. We don't want to repeat the mistakes of the fossil fuel industry or you know, we want to be consulted. We want to be part of the decision-making process and maybe reform this really outdated law. Yeah. All right. We'll leave it there. Manvi Singh, West Coast reporter for The Gov- the Guardian, joining us to talk more about this uranium mine near the Grand Canyon. Manvi, thank you for coming on. I appreciate it. Thank you. The annual point-in-time count took place in Maricopa County this week. The federally mandated count means in the wee hours of the morning, once a year in January, volunteers spread out across the region to go out and count the number of people experiencing homelessness here. But the count is only as true as its name. The point-in-time count measures a point in time, how many people they are able to locate at that time each year. But it's the main determinant for federal funds from the Department of Housing and Urban Development, or HUD. Well, our next guest works in homeless services in our city and says they already have a good handle on how many people are experiencing homelessness, and the point-in-time count tends to be an undercount. Richard Cruz is the program director for the Human Services Campus, which has rebranded as Keys to Change, and I spoke with him more about it. So the accuracy of the count is that the count happens every year. Right. So it's a year over year number that we can say um, has been counted with that fidelity year over year um, for, you know, a great number of years going back. That's the accuracy of the count. At the same time, you know, we're working with a population that's good at not being counted, that's good at not being found, that's good at existing in you know, as a means of survival in the cracks and crevices of society. And so there's thousands of people that are also not counted every year. And, and maybe that's an overestimation in terms of that grand number, but mm-hmm. the, the the accuracy of the numbers is just in that we've done this number on this date consistently 
and historically. At this point in time, this was the number of people we were able to count. Do you think there is consistently an undercount involved in this? There definitely is. There definitely is. And like, I would say that even in terms of how homelessness is rising in different populations, what definitely gets drastically undercounted would be like family homelessness. So you'll give an example of some of these cities that will come back with really low numbers around how many people are currently experiencing homelessness in their city. They're not talking about families that are living in cars. Mm. You know, this uh, working population that that is now experiencing homelessness in, in greater numbers that, again, we're not like, it's not who you traditionally think of when you're talking about what's the poster child for those experiencing homelessness. How does that manifest or create problems probably down the line when it comes to that that all-important federal HUD funding? So we want to make sure that this number is where it needs to be. And that needs to be just from a standpoint of being accurate. We need to be able to say to HUD, like, oh, no, hey, we have this problem with this population in Phoenix or in Maricopa County. So there needs to be additional dollars to come in to focus on our youth strategy. There needs to be additional dollars that come in and focus on our senior strategy. There needs to be additional dollars that come in to focus on building capacity for shelter, right? But if we undercount in any given population, then that now puts us in a disadvantageous position when we do go for funding to build capacity around these initiatives. So there is another way of doing this, right, of, of getting a count of, of the number of people who are experiencing homelessness in our community. They're called by name lists. It sounds like you keep one there at, yes. at the Keys campus. So tell us a little yes. bit about how that approach works, how different it is. So, okay, think of this in a, in a completely different function. The by name list is the list of all those currently active in the system experiencing homelessness. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. this has the roughly 7,000 plus individuals currently in the system, currently um, engaging in services. Um, and so it's a long line. But the by name list will tell us who's engaged, who they're engaged with, what the interventions are, what they've done, all of that. We're operating off of that on a weekly basis, updating that information, case conferencing and and coordinating care and staffing across the county for everyone uh, that's on the by name list. At the same time, uh, you have what's called the Homeless Management Information System. And so that's the big database uh, that, that translates federally across HUD for those that are uh, in the system. Okay. That system in and of itself also then tells us at any given time, we can pull the numbers so that you have these live numbers that say, we know this many people are in the system. Um, And these two things work together. So that's what works for service delivery. That's what works for program design. That's what works for conversations with uh, funders. All of those are the pieces where I'm going to pull back on those numbers to report out what I need to know and make the real decisions I need to make on a day-to-day basis on how we serve those currently experiencing homelessness across the county. Right. So it sounds like this is more accurate and and more complete. Like there's you're even including things like the needs that these folks have. Correct. So do you think that these by name lists would be a better approach to determining HUD funding? Like should they replace something like the point in time count? So I think that there's ways that we could do the point in time count differently. 
the point in time count can work in communities where homelessness is easy to understand. If I'm in Prescott, for example, maybe, right, my point in time count works really well for me, right? Like, because I know who those 30 individuals are that are experiencing homelessness in my community because we know, like, everybody knows everybody. But when you have it where homelessness is, is existing in this space of complexity and has many different facets and faces and and all of those pieces to it, then in that space, it's like, well, well, how do you create something that's that's more holistic in terms of what it takes on? I don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. Sure. So I don't I don't need a whole new count, but it's to say like if we have these other tools that we're using, how is it that government officials become aware of what those numbers are mm -hmm. so that they're not trying to say, oh, well, unsheltered homelessness is down because we counted fewer of them this year. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, well, excuse me, hold on, hold on, wait a second. <laughs> so I want you to use your eyes and tell me that uh, that unsheltered homelessness is down when you're driving under the I-17 and, and you see rows of people in the underpass. When you're driving down the 10 and you get a peek over the walls and you can see that they're lined up all across the canal, right? Like, like, don't tell me that unsheltered homelessness is down when I know, because I can see it, that it's up because it's everywhere. So, so Richard, I mean, the, the point in time count this year is happening this week. Um, yeah. What do you expect to see this year, even if it isn't, you know, an undercount? So I expect for numbers to be higher, right? Numbers are going to be higher because, I mean, like, the reality is that we have one of the fastest growing homeless populations in the, in the country. Right. So numbers year over year are going to have gone up. We know this because there are more people coming in. We currently in Maricopa County, it's, it's essentially two to one. Right. So for every one person that that we get out of the system, two more are coming back. I anticipate that because we're facing this ARPA cliff mm -hmm. over the next two years, our numbers are going to sharply increase. This is the the American Rescue Plan federal funding yes. running that, out. That funding is, yes, that funding's running out. That's really hundreds of millions of dollars just within this county mm -hmm. that are not going to organizations. I think that where people were alarmed by what they would see in the community outside of the campus when we had over a thousand people unsheltered. I think that we're going to see that in smaller doses all over the county in the years to come. Yeah. All right. We'll leave it there for now. Richard Cruz, Program Director for Keys to Change, joining us to talk more about this. Richard, thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you for having me. Good morning. It's the show on KJZZ 91.5. I'm Lauren Gilger. And I'm Mark Brody. The 2023-24 Phoenix Suns have gotten a lot of attention around the NBA for their big three of Devin Booker, Kevin Durant, and Bradley Beal, and to an extent for the injuries that have kept them from playing together for stretches of the season. But the Suns this year have also gotten attention for their new city edition uniforms, known as El Valle. And according to my next guest, they pay homage to Chicano culture, specifically lowrider culture. 
Miguel Angel Godoy is a muralist and instructor of painting and drawing at ASU. He also designed the jerseys. He points out the lettering of the words El Valle is influenced by the script in the logos of lowrider cars. And he says the numbers pay tribute to the block letter style of Chicano typography. He stopped by the studio recently to talk about his work and this project, and we started with how he describes his style of art. It's it's <laughs> that's a, tough that's one, a, huh? That's a wild question. Yeah. Yes. Um, every every project kind of has its own mandate, right? And I think um, for me, being a designer, um, I've been able to kind of lean on the needs of really the, the community, right? When I'm, you know, let's just talk about some of the community-based murals that I've done locally. It's really about the imagery that they want to see, right? And kind of being inspired by um, their intentions. And so with that comes all types of imagery, right? From graphic to realistic. And um, so my style, it changes. It changes from project to project. Yeah. But I think one thing that's the most consistent is really color, the idea of color and the impact that it has on on a community, on people. Well, so what's your process then for, I guess, taking input? Like when you go to a community group or a school or a place that has commissioned a work of yours, you want to sort of represent them. You want to have their, you know, them reflected in your work. How do you try to go about learning about them and, and incorporating that into what you're doing? Right. It's it's mostly through a prompt. It's it's a you know well, I'll have prompts set up. Um, and sometimes it, it's just a quick – it's a simple prompt, right? Maybe one, two or three prompts. Um, and that starts the conversation. And then I think from there is is when I, I start to listen, right? I take notes. I've got my clipboard out and I'm constantly taking notes. Okay. Um, things that I can refer back to. But um, it's really about listening and, um, and hearing out uh, their ideas and what it is that they want to see. I've read in other interviews where you've talked about really sort of leaning into your background, your culture, mm-hmm. in in terms of some of the artwork that you do as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. How big of a component is is that? I think it's huge, right? Um, because I can't avoid it. You know, even if I tried to, right? Those are my roots. It's, yeah. it's I bring all these lessons with me. I bring all this aesthetic with me from all these different um, different art forms. Um, and so, yeah, culturally, as a Chicano, I'm definitely inspired by a lot of things. Um, first of all, the lowrider culture, right? Chicano art, which I'm inspired by from my dad's drawings. Um, then murals, right? Hip hop, graffiti, um, and seeing the ties between those and lowrider art and Chicano art. And then um, the Mexican muralists, right? Um, and so I, I kind of bring all that with me, regardless of what intention, what design mandate there is. It's, it's, it will always be there. So you mentioned your dad, and I know that you are not the only artist in your family, obviously, your dad, but your mom also was very artistic and crafty. Like, how much of this being sort of a family affair played into what you do now? So much, so much. I mean, um, you can imagine every holiday, my mother really going all out and with decorations and I mean, we'd be pulling all nighters as, as, <laughs> as a family. Sounds like fun. <laughs> it's a little crazy at the at the time, but um, the you know seeing the reward after, right? Like seeing you know all our hard work and and that's been since I was real young. But um, it, it's kind of two things, right? There's this umbrella of craftsmanship. Everything falls under this idea of craftsmanship and hard work. Um, and I think that's what I really gained from both my mother and my father, and not just me, but my two brothers and my sister were all into the arts. 
And your kids too, right? And my kids as well. Yes. That's amazing. So what does it mean for you then to have taken part in this latest project in terms of designing these El Valle jerseys and the other merchandise for the Suns? It's, it's, uh, you know, first of all, I feel super honored, right? Like that's, that's, I just, I feel I have so much gratitude for having had the opportunity to collaborate with the Suns on, on the El Valle uniform. Um, and knowing that I was able to lean on my background, really lean on my Chicanismo, right? Like me, my Chicano heritage, really being able to lean on that with this design and knowing that it was going to be representing a whole people, a whole raza, right? Um, so for me, that that was huge. Um, and then to know or now know how well it has been accepted and it's, it's really overwhelming. <laughs> yeah. Well, so in terms of working with the team and trying to figure out what you're going to do? Because I would imagine that's pretty daunting, right? Like an NBA team comes to you and says, hey, we'd like you to design a jersey for us, a uniform for us. Like, where do you even start? Right. Yeah. So the, the yeah, I think I think the idea was, so there was a debrief, right? A design debrief after what kind of signed on for the project and learned a little bit more about it. Um, and then reading through the debrief, the main intention was really celebrating, you know, with the city edition, with the with the city edition is really yeah. celebrating kind of the community, right? The city's uh, breath. And so we were looking at the demographic of who was coming to the games. It was first, second, and third generation Mexican Americans. So we know, and we knew that in this, they knew that in this city edition, they want to celebrate the Mexican American story. Um, and so that was that was the that was the debrief. That was basically we're talking about prompts, right? That was the prompt, okay? Right? How in an NBA uniform can we really tell the story of what it means to be bicultural, right? What it means to be. Um, there's a saying in Spanish, ni de aquí, ni de allá. You know, I'm not from here, I'm not from there. And really sharing this uh, beautiful story of being bicultural. Um, so that was the prompt, and it's layered, right? There's so many ways to tell this story. But what we kept coming back to was the idea of lowrider culture, because that's something that is exclusively Mexican-American or Chicano. Well, I've read where you've said in the past that part of the goal here was to destigmatize lowrider culture. I'm curious how you try to go about doing that in a project like this. Yeah, I think I think definitely being intentional with with our work, right? Like um, knowing that you know there's some things that will have to change, um, and we really and it's 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 we're covering many things, right? It has to be sporty. It's it's on an NBA jersey, right? Right. Um, but we also have to be authentic. We also have to tell the story of lowrider culture. And so I think that in, in and of itself, the fact that the Phoenix Suns, the fact that the, there's an NBA jersey celebrating lowrider culture, I think that by itself destigmatizes it because it's really this huge platform that's embracing something, a beautiful culture, right, and really telling the story the way it should be told. I want to ask about the significance of the fact that they're Spanish on mm-hmm. the jersey. It doesn't say the valley. It doesn't say El Valley. Like in the past, we've seen Los Suns. Mm-hmm. This is El Valle. This is totally in Spanish. Yes. Yeah, that's huge, right? Representation always and in all ways. And, and that's what's Spanish, right? Like, why not? Why, why, why not? And I think, yeah, just that idea by itself, the fact that there is this, this NBA team that's represented through the Spanish language, El Valle, right? Um, I think that's huge. 
That's Miguel Angel Godoy, an instructor of painting and drawing at ASU and a community-based muralist. He's also the designer of the Phoenix Suns El Valle jerseys. More of our conversation in just a moment. You are listening to the show. Good morning, it's the show here on KJZZ 91.5 in Phoenix. I'm Lauren Gilger. And I'm Mark Brody. And now let's get back, get back to my conversation with artist Miguel Angel Godoy, who designed the Phoenix Sun City Edition jerseys for the season. They're known as El Valle and pay tribute to lowrider culture. The Suns are known for using orange and purple in their uniforms. And I asked him, as he was thinking about designing this, how he tried to merge the team's existing logos and colors into what he was trying to create. I think the beauty of the city edition is that you have some flexibility, right? Okay. That you can kind of steer away, not too far away, yeah. <laughs> but from the from their um, from their lexicon. And uh, fortunately for us here in Phoenix, we have these beautiful sunsets, right? Which I've been painting on my murals since I got here five years ago, and I've been actually using this color palette for a long time, even before, because okay. I'm really drawn to color, like I was telling you. Um, and so this is actually a gradient that I've used in several of my my works. And so, yeah, it started with that, right? It started with that. And then really this idea of these magentas and these pinks and these rich colors is something that you're going to see in paint jobs on lowriders, right? They're bold colors. They're making a bold statement. Um, and so it just kind of fell hand in hand, right? It just kind of worked really well. Did you have a number of drafts? I, I'm not sure if you call them drafts in art, but yeah. like, did you have other versions that you had created that didn't seem quite right to you before you came upon this one? Absolutely. Absolutely. There's probably like five or six. Okay. Yeah, like and how did you know drafts. that this was the one? I think through all the listening, right? We're talking about listening, right? Yeah. And so through all the listening and hearing out all the conversations, and we'd have check-ins with Nike and the NBA, and I'd have my own check-ins with the Suns. And there were some things that were working, and then there were some things that weren't, right? And then, but just listening and and coming back to the revisions, and then knowing, having a better idea of where we were going. Once we settled on the idea of representing lowrider culture, Chicano culture, that that was it. I think I think that's when I knew exactly what it was I had to do. Um, and the, really, the aha moment, I, I had it. I knew I had it in the pocket. I was really confident with what I had. But um, I think the aha moment was when I took it to the Suns and I saw their eyes light up. And that's when I think we all knew that this is it. That must have felt amazing. It was. (laughs) (laughs) It was. It was. So I've got to ask, because one of the Suns' stars, Devin Booker, is also very into lowrider culture. Did you guys have any kind of conversations about, like, if he's going to be wearing these uniforms, and this is something that he's also pretty knowledgeable about, like, did he have any input or did he have any suggestions or feedback for you? Not not, not on the uniform necessarily. This was all kind of two years ago. Okay. Um, but, yeah, he's very much into Loretta culture. He's part Chicano, right? And so a lot of us Chicanos or Mexicanos here in the Valley, we know that. And so it's kind of like he's our guy, right? Yeah. He's Raza. He's our guy. Um, and so that was that was another part. I've all, I was already a fan of Booker. And so knowing that, too, that kind of added to the whole um, responsibility behind, you know, the design for sure. Did you feel a responsibility in creating this? Very much so. Very much so. Yeah, definitely representing a whole culture, representing a whole city. Um, absolutely. So what does it feel like to you to watch 
the Phoenix Suns play in jerseys that you have designed and an arena full of fans, many of whom are wearing them themselves. It's it's surreal, right? If there's, if there's one word I can say, it's surreal. And, and, and it doesn't get old. You know, I often get asked that question, does it kind of get old after a while? I was like, no, it doesn't. <laughs> it doesn't. I get excited when I see posts on Instagram. I get excited when I'm at the sports shops and they have the whole advice section. Um, it's yeah. If I can go back to that first day, right the first the the first in season tournament game where they were actually wearing the jerseys, um, it was just seeing them move with the jersey and like knowing all the thought that went into kind of how this plays out, right? Because there's a there's a whole different it's a whole different animal, right? When you, when you're putting your artwork on something that's moving, something that's going to be interpreted and it has to be legible. It has to be quick. And um, it's just so different. And so uh, seeing it in person and knowing that we got it right, I think that's that, you know, technically, like if I can just speak technically, I think that was probably the biggest impact. That's really interesting because as you say, you're very experienced in doing murals, mm-hmm. which are, of course, not moving. <laughs> like They right. s- stay where they are. Yes. But not only are these jerseys moving, they're moving very quickly and doing all sorts of actions that maybe maybe you could envision, maybe you couldn't, but you still had to design with that in mind. That's a really interesting concept. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. And with every project, right, um, whether it's a mural or a design, it's, it, it all takes different forms. So what goes through your mind, given all the thought that went into the the design and the making of this of this jersey of this design? Like what goes through your head when you when you see the Suns playing it and you see people wearing it, especially given, you know, what you said about trying to destigmatize this community and sort of raise awareness and in- encourage inclusion? Like that must that right. must be a big deal. It is a huge deal. Um and knowing that not all, obviously, not all the players are Chicanos, right? Um, but they're still embracing this identity. They're still embracing this idea. Um, I think that, for me, has been the most beautiful part. And not just the players, but the entire Phoenix community. We were at a sporting goods store the other day, and there was a couple that was not not of Mexican descent, and they were so jazzed up on the uniform. And and my wife is she's <laughs> everywhere we go. She's like, he designed it. He designed it. <laughs> And I love her so much for that. Um, and in that moment, I felt like I should have said something. I didn't. I felt like I should have said something. But it was just I, – I just kind of took a back seat. And I was really appreciating that moment where they were embracing it, you know. And so, yeah, when we speak about inclusion, it's there. That seems like it would be very validating, not only to see your product in stores and, you know, on the court, but also to see people who maybe otherwise would have no reason to embrace it embrace it. Absolutely. Yeah, that's huge. So let's go through the jersey a little bit because okay. we talked about the El Valle at the top and you talked about the color palette as mm-hmm. well. The side panels are really interesting. And in in hearing you talk about this in the past, that seems to be sort of where you really try to embrace what what these low riders, what these cars actually look like. Yes. Right. Yeah. That, that side panel is really um, the celebration. If If you look at you know these beautiful paint jobs on these lowriders. You know they, they they go down the side, right? They, so I got the schematic from the Suns on the uniform, and I flipped it on its side, and it almost looks like a car. Huh. I, I even drew two tires on it, and I said, "This is <laughs> this is the car. This is the side panel." 
And so it helped me reframe the way I was thinking about this jersey. And we almost started to look at look at it as if it were a lowrider. Um, and so we knew that we had to celebrate this beautiful paint job on this side panel. All right. Miguel Angel Godoy, thank you so much for coming in. Thank I appreciate you. it. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. What a great guy and a great story, Mark. That was he was awesome. so interesting. So cool. All right. Well, that'll do it for this Thursday edition of the show. We will, of course, be back with you again tomorrow morning with much more. Not much to talk about on the politics cap this week. That'll huh? be slow. Yeah. Just yeah. another slow one. <laughs> Don't forget to follow us on Instagram. We are at KJZZ The Show. For Mark Brody, I am Lauren Gilger. Thanks for joining us. Have a good one. That's it for this episode of The Show Podcast. To find out more about the stories from today or other episodes, visit theshow.kjzz.org. And you can subscribe to KJZZ's The Show on your favorite podcasting site. I'm Mark Brody. Thanks for listening today.